You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Smokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring you in-depth expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm your host, Michael McFall, the director of the Freeman Smokely Institute. Today, Steve Pfeiffer and Frank Fukuyama are joining World Class to talk about Ukraine. Steve is a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and affiliate with our International Cooperation and Security and the Europe Center here at FSI. And Frank is a senior fellow here at FSI. He also runs our Masters in International Policy program and leads uh, democracy and leadership development programs all over the world, LAD, as we call them, including several programs that he's done in Ukraine itself. We're now entering the nine month since Putin invaded Ukraine. And people have a lot of questions about what's happening, what's the trajectory of the war, what might cause the war to end, and what might happen after the war. And so Steve, Frank, and I are going to try to talk about that today for a few minutes. Welcome back to World Class to both of you. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you, Mike. So Steve, let's start with you first. Just give us your 30,000 feet assessment of where the war is, battlefield stuff. And Frank, then we'll turn to you about where you think the war is now and where it's going in the next three to six months. Or if you want to even speculate beyond that, Steve, go ahead. Then we'll turn to Frank. Yeah, well, the war has taken a very unexpected turn for Moscow in that for the last two and a half months, the Ukrainians have been winning. They've pushed uh, the Russian military entirely out of the Kharkiv Oblast in the Northeast. They're threatening to move into Luhansk Oblast. And down in the South, uh, they're making a bid that looks like it will be successful in the coming weeks to push the Russians out of Kherson, which would mean that there's no longer any Russian military presence on the western side of the Dnieper River, which roughly bisects Ukraine. Now, the question is, can the Ukrainians sustain this? I would like to believe and think that the Ukrainians could push the Russians all the way out, or at least back to the February 23 line. But my guess is at some point, they're going to run out of steam. And then the question is, does this settle down into a longer war of attrition, which is what the U.S. intelligence community expects, where the sides slug it out, but neither can make a decisive win on the battlefield? We'll have to see, but it could go on for a long time. Steve, before I go to Frank, just because you know Ukraine better than the rest of us, help everybody, all our listeners understand when you say the February 23rd line, what that means. The February 23rd line was the line before the Russians launched this invasion on February 24. At that point in time, the Russians, of course, they had occupied Crimea and they occupied about a third of what we call Donbass. That's the Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast in Ukraine's east. Right. And Putin has on paper annexed both Donbass, those two regions, and two more regions, but not in reality. More than that, I mean, and Putin made those annexations in September when he did not even control the four oblasts in eastern right. Ukraine. And in fact, he's lost more ground since then. And his uh, presidential spokesman cannot even define where the line was as to what they uh, annexed. Very right. strange situation. Frank, what about you? What's your kind of 30,000 feet about where we're at now and where the war is heading? Well, the one worry that I have right now is really about the United States. In the war up to this point, I think the Biden administration has done an admirable job in arming Ukraine by far. The U.S. contribution is way outstripped anybody else's support for Ukraine. And it always seemed like the Europeans, especially the Western Europeans, were dragging behind and coming you know, late with their equipment and offers of support. Right. But now, in a way, the roles seem to be potentially reversing. Support for continuing to support Ukraine in Europe is actually pretty strong. 
There doesn't seem to be any evidence in public opinion polls that the threat of a cold winter is going to deter that. One effect of global warming, but it's been a warm winter so far, and so gas supplies in Europe are actually pretty good. They stocked a lot anticipating this over the summer. But now it's the United States that I worry about because with every single aid vote in Congress, you know, it started out with something like four or five Republican House members voting against Ukraine aid at the beginning. And now it's up to like 40. But with every single vote, the number increases. A lot of the people on the far right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have come out very explicitly. She said, not another penny is going to go to Ukraine if the Republicans take over. Now, I don't think that that's an accurate prediction because there's still a lot of Republicans that do want to support Ukraine, like Mitch McConnell, Tom Cotton. They still remain pretty hawkish, but particularly if Trump... So first of all, we're recording this on election day. We don't know what the results of... By the time this is put up, People will know what the results of the election are, but nobody... Maybe, maybe. (laughs) It could go on for a long time, right? Yeah, But I don't think anybody is expecting the Democrats to do terribly well. And once the Republicans take over the House and possibly the Senate, you know, it's very possible that you'll have a kind of snowball effect opposing further aid to Ukraine. If Donald Trump declares his candidacy... I sort of think that he's got a lot of incentives to actually make this a big issue. Right. It's very hard for me to imagine him supporting Joe Biden on this particular issue, given how his base is really increasingly turning against this. And that means that what Putin has been hoping for all along may actually come about, which is that it's the United States that will weaken. In fact, some Russians like Prigozhin have said, you know, that they are interfering in the American election and the talking heads in Moscow are saying very explicitly that they're hoping for the Republicans to win because this is what's really going to help them in in their war against Ukraine. Right. To remind everybody, Prigozhin is the head of the Wagner group that was initially involved in our 2016 election. And he now says these things explicitly. Steve, what's your reaction to that? I'm curious how what your sense, both the political stuff that Frank's talking about with the shift to the Congress, but I'm also interested in your views about how you think the Biden administration is doing in terms of staying the course. Vladimir Putin is fighting a two-front war. The military fight in Ukraine, his military is now losing. But his second fund is really to undercut American and Western support for Ukraine, because if he can get the West to cut off the flow of financial assistance and arms to Ukraine, ultimately the Russian military can prevail on the battlefield. I do worry about the points that Frank raised. I mean, for 30 years, we've generally had strong bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats for Ukraine. But the trend lines that you've seen, particularly in the MAGA wing of the Republican Party over the past six or seven months, are not good. So I worry about that. Now, I think if there is this threat, I mean, what the Biden administration can do is try to push through legislation in the lame duck season to try to sustain support into well into 2023 for Ukraine. But it does seem to me that the administration understands we want to be in a position where the West helps Ukraine either drive the Russian military out of Ukraine or where the Ukrainians get to a point where there can be a negotiated settlement on terms that Kyiv can accept. And, and we're nowhere near that point yet. So that does mean that the Biden administration should keep doing more. I think they can do more in terms of tightening sanctions, particularly on the energy sanctions. 
that would restrict or reduce the flow of energy revenues going to Russia. And I, my one quibble with the administration, I believe we should be providing more weapons to Ukraine now, first and foremost, air defense systems, basically because the Russians have now resorted to this tactic of basically indiscriminate tax on Ukrainian cities or a tax aimed at the energy, the power, the water infrastructure in Ukraine. Right. Also armor. And I think it's time to provide the Ukrainians with the longer range version of the high runner's rocket, the one that can go 200 miles, not just 50 miles. Because we've seen the Ukrainians over the past four months, they've used the shorter range version, the 50 mile version, to usually disrupt Russian logistics. And that's had a big impact on the Ukrainians' ability to conduct counteroffenses both in the east and the south. With the 200 mile version, they could disrupt logistics in Crimea, farther back in Donbass, and that would just relieve the pressure and make it easier for the Ukrainians to advance on the front line. Certainly, they could provide the long-range missile with the same proviso that we gave in the short-range missiles. Don't strike targets in Russia proper. Although I would also add an asterisk to that, as I'd put out the word that if the Russians escalate or continue indiscriminate attacks, maybe we would drop that proviso and give the Ukrainians a green card to go ahead and launch attacks into Russia proper. One development to worry about, there's been talk about the Russians buying ballistic missiles, longer-range ballistic missiles from Iran, which has already provided these shorter range, very slow drones that have been used to attack Ukrainian infrastructure, the ability of these air defense systems to deal with at least a certain class of ballistic missiles is much more limited. And if that's the case, really the only counter is to actually go after the sources of the missiles. Launchers, uh, right. A lot of them are actually coming from Crimea. In fact, I think Steve suggested this in a recent tweet that the ATACMs, these long-range weapons that we supply, you know, could be used to go after those bases in Crimea from which these attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure are happening. I mean, it's a very unbalanced war because the Russians have been free to attack civilian targets all over Ukraine, and Ukrainians can't hit back, including the military targets from which these rockets are being launched. And I think that's going to be a real problem for Ukraine, as if, in fact, the uh, Iranians do supply these ballistic missiles. Well, that's pretty depressing. So you would recommend, Frank, these new systems like Steve was talking about, right? The attackums? Yeah, and I think the Ukrainians have shown that, you know, if we tell them don't attack Russia proper, you know, they'll do that. I don't think we have to worry about that. Right. But I do think that they need some options beyond the ones that are currently on the table to deal with what they're going to face over the winter. Right. Steve, you touched on it a bit, but I want to drill down a little bit further because there's been recently here in the United States, a lot of back and forth. The Progressive Caucus released a letter and then they withdrew it. But some of their members said they didn't withdraw it. But the basic gist was we need to give diplomacy a chance and the Biden administration's not doing enough on the diplomatic front. First to you, Steve, and then to Frank, give our listeners your views of those kinds of arguments and what's realistic and what's not. I think it's a good idea, as was described in an article, I think, of the Wall Street Journal yesterday, for the Biden administration to make contact with Russia to avoid miscalculation, to avoid escalation, things like that. Right. But I also do not think it's a good idea for the United States now to engage with Russia on the terms of a settlement between Kiev and Moscow. And the, the reason I think this is that ultimately, again, I would like to see the Ukrainians able to drive the Russians out of Ukrainian territory. Right. Not sure they can do that. So I suspect at the end of the day, the most likely outcome is at some point there will be a negotiation. 
that negotiation is going to get into some very sensitive questions. You know, would the Ukrainians consider, for example, some territorial concessions? Right. I don't think the United States or the Germans or the British can make those decisions for Kiev because those are going to be questions with huge domestic political ramifications that could only be a decision for Kiev to make. So I think, and I believe the Biden administration thus far is not pushing the Ukrainians to negotiate. That should be their decision. And there really is no prospect of any kind of a serious negotiation when you have the Russians basically not only with their original demands, but now demanding even more. They're asking the Ukrainians now to recognize Russia's illegal annexation of four Ukrainian oblasts, even though the Russian military doesn't control that territory. Right. Until there's a change in Moscow and Moscow begins to more, get more serious, we shouldn't be asking the Ukrainians to try to negotiate. What's your view, Frank? Well, I think looking forward, it probably is not realistic at this point to think that the Ukrainians can drive the Russians out of all of the territory they occupied after February 24th, although they could still do quite a lot. And, you know, the most important parts are really in southern Ukraine so that they regain access to the Black Sea. The Institute for the Study of War in Washington did an interesting analysis a couple of weeks ago about what defensible lines would look like for the Ukrainians. And basically, I think we have to assume that if there's a negotiation and a ceasefire after further Ukrainian advances, that for the Russians, this would not be an end to conflict, that they will rearm, you know, they'll get ready for a second round. And so... Ukraine has to be ready for that. And so what constitutes a good position to be in anticipating, you know, this continuation of a conflict? Right. And what they said basically is you got to push them out of Kherson Oblast onto the east bank of the Dnipro River. And in fact, you got to push them out of artillery range, which is about 25 kilometers south of the river. The river itself is a good defensive line that they should be able to hold and you don't want the Russians to be able to pile up artillery along the right bank of the river. And there's probably similar lines in Donbass that would be defensible. And so I suspect that it might be the case that if the Ukrainians realistically can get to that point, then you know maybe they could start thinking among themselves. And I agree completely, it's not up to us, but it's really up to them whether there's a basis for talking at that point. But I do think that this should be driven by these kinds of military considerations, not under any illusions about the fact that you're somehow going to negotiate a permanent peace with Moscow. And I think that will really depend on political change in Moscow itself, which, you know, Mike, you're the one that would be able to talk about. Well, I'm not sure I had much to say on it, but you're right. I think President Zelensky said that on the record, at least. That's what you'll need for permanent peace as a different leader in Moscow. Well, to close out, a couple of last questions for you both about the future. I mean, first, I'm curious, what is the mood like to the best of your understanding in Ukraine, among Ukrainians? You both talk to Ukrainians often Mm. about where the war is now. And the second question is, is it too early to begin to talk about post-war reconstruction. There are estimates between 750 billion and a trillion dollars will be needed. Who's gonna pay for that? How is it gonna be distributed? But maybe it's too early to talk about that. I'm curious, both mood music, the sentiment in Ukraine, and is it too early to start talking about post-war kinds of issues like reconstruction and security guarantees for that matter? So Steve, let's start with you and then we'll give Frank the last word. Yeah, I think on the mood, again, 
the Russians, I believe, are making another miscalculation. They have fought this war in a way that was almost designed to foster and increase and strengthen Ukrainian resolve. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just evidence that in the Kremlin and, the, and in the Russian general staff, they seriously lack a real understanding of Ukrainians. Yes. Because what they've done for the last eight months has only hardened the resolve of Ukrainians to resist. And I think that that just continues to build. And the post-war, I think it's certainly not too early to begin planning because you're going to want to have a good plan. It's going to be a very expensive and extensive project for Ukraine to rebuild. And we need to think about we're going to get in the money. I would like to see the West move to take that $300 billion in frozen Russian central bank assets. Right. Both that to a fund for building Ukraine. But we also have to think that the problem that Frank mentioned is if there is an end to this war, but Vladimir Putin is still in Moscow, this war has been you know, suspended, it hasn't been ended. So I do think we have to begin to consider how do we help Ukraine avoid a repetition of this? Now, right. some Ukrainians say you know, the answer is NATO membership. I try to caution Ukrainians against that because at this point in time, I don't see a consensus among NATO members that they would be prepared to go to war with Russia for Ukraine. My right. guess is maybe a third of the NATO members are there, but a lot aren't. So I would think the Ukrainians instead should be pressing to get commitments from Washington, Berlin, London, everyone, that they will help Ukraine build a modern, robust army. And I'm talking things like Leopard tanks, M1 tanks, modern air defenses, ABA-10s and F-16 aircraft. So if the Ukrainians have the ability themselves to deter another Russian attack, right. I think that puts the deterrence in the hands of the Ukrainians. And my guess is it would be easier for Ukraine to get those commitments from Western leaders than a commitment to come to their defense should Russia invade again. Right. right. I, I certainly think that Ukraine in the future is going to have to turn into a little Sparta or Israel, you know, in terms of its long-term ability to defend itself. I don't think it's too early to think about post-war, and it affects the war objectives. It's much more important to liberate those southern ports like Kherson and Melitopol and Mariupol and so forth than it is to get back the whole of the Donbass, because Ukraine absolutely needs to be able to export freely, not at the whim of the Russians. And I think they can do that. One of the interesting things that happened in the last week is that after an attack on Sebastopol, Putin announced that he was pulling out of the grain deal. And yeah. Erdogan kind of flexed his muscles and forced the Russians to back down on that. And so the grain ships are still going. And I think you need to end up at, after a negotiation at a point where the Russian Black Sea Fleet cannot impose this blockade that they've been doing. One final thing to say on the Russian side, in the last couple of days, it's been unbelievable. They've targeted more than a dozen sites where these newly mobilized troops have been pouring into the Kherson area. Right. They have killed. They being know, the Ukrainians, right, Frank, yeah, just they, to clarify. The Ukrainians have killed just yeah. hundreds and hundreds of Russians. And you actually feel very sorry for these guys because they're pulled off the streets and then two, three weeks later, they're dead and their relatives can't even collect their bodies. But the Russians are also facing a, a really big crisis. And one of the questions is whether they're going to be in a 1917 type situation at some point where you're just shoving all of these civilians into this meat grinder, calling them soldiers, and whether they're just going to revolt against this because the choice is a certain death, you know, if they go into battle or they take their risks and try to turn against their commanders. 
Well, that's something we should watch. Uh, let's get you guys to come back and we'll talk about that the next time. Because tragically, Frank, I completely agree. It's shocking how bad they're doing this. The noise inside Russia about it is increasing. As one of my Russian friends said to me, the war for Russia didn't begin in February. It began in September when mass mobilization made everybody pay attention. And the longer that goes on, the more unsettling it's going to be inside without predicting 1917-like scenarios, right? But I would say we're usually pretty bad at predicting those kinds of things, and it's something we should all watch. Stephen Frank, fantastic conversation. Let's just do it again. We just got to keep talking, watching one of the most important, tragic, but significant events of our times. So you've been listening to World Class with Steve Pfeiffer and Frank Fukuyama, and my name is Michael McFall here at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe on Apple and Simplecast to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.